Good morning, everyone. Hi, Sue. You must have snuck in when I wasn't looking. Thanks for coming. That song has a lot of, I'm going to try to say this without crying, but I'm like, whoo, already, okay. That song has special meaning to me also. Um, Came out about nine years ago, and it was in the middle of a lot of traumatic stuff we were going through with Carson. And I found myself with that song downloaded on my phone on a plane to Montana with him, because at that time we were going all over the country trying to find someone to help him. And um, I had done all this research and, you know, was looking at a particular treatment and I could find only one doctor in the country who was doing this particular treatment. And we were like, all right, I guess we're going to Montana next. But I was just on the plane and I remember thinking, what are we doing? You know, we had been to New York for six months. We had been to Tampa. We had been... Um, You know, I knew out of the country travel would have been too difficult for him. It was difficult enough in the country. And I remember that song came on my phone, and I just sobbed all the way to Montana. I don't even know what's in Montana. We saw, like, three miles worth of it. It was lovely. But um, that was a treatment that ended up not doing anything for him but making him sicker like all the others. But it is amazing how the Lord will use certain songs in your life just as markers, you know, to get you through certain times. So, whew. All right, we're going to get into some scripture today and kind of accelerate, but deep, okay? Deep with God is how I like to roll. I, I, I just personally don't do well with light teaching. Or like little devotional books that give you like three sentences for the day. And, you know, surface conversation, stuff like that. I like depth. And it's the whole principle of where Jesus said, be careful how you hear. Because the more you're listening, the more understanding will be given. And I know you guys do. I want the more understanding. And there is no limit to how deep we can go with him if we're, if we want to, right? So you can turn with me to Hebrews 3. We're going to start in Hebrews 3.16. And what's happening here in this passage is the author of Hebrews is running through a retelling of how the Israelites disobeyed God and they distrusted God and some of the consequences that came from that. And then in verse 16, we're going to start and it says, And who was it who rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people? Moses led out of Egypt. And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. And we'll keep reading into chapter 4. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news, 
that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listen to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest, even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. We know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. And I just want to read that last sentence again in the Amplified Version because it's so good. It says, let us therefore be zealous and exert ourselves and strive diligently to enter that rest that no one may fall or perish by the same kind of unbelief and disobedience. So as you might guess, we're going to talk about rest today and how it is one of the most important concepts in the Bible. And it also is what the Lord has been moving us into. And we've been talking about it a lot. But first, I want to define what it is and what it is not and kind of demystify this a little bit, Um, because everyone hears the word rest and thinks, you know, an absence of busyness or just a calmness. And that is not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. He is talking about a spiritual rest, a completely spiritual concept, not a physical one. Okay. And the very first thing to note is that, as it says many times here in this passage, it is a place we can enter into. Okay. When you enter into something, there's a doorway or a threshold or an entry point of some kind, which means we can live in it or we can live outside of it. Okay. True rest is when our faith is complete. It is what James 1, 3 through 4 speaks of where he says, For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Okay, these passages speak of a place to attain to. There is a place where you are tested repeatedly by faith and your, your repeated testing can bring you to a place of being perfect and complete. And it's not that we ever stop growing. It's that our faith stays secure in that place. Okay? And rest is that place. Rest is, is when trust for every area of your life is so firmly established it can't be shaken. So rest is about a thousand small choices over time for faith that culminate into a lifestyle of, of permanent trust. Okay? It's the ultimate place of peace, but it's peace from strong faith. 
not not like a fake peace that's like, well, I'm just I'm just going to ignore my circumstances. I'm going to block them out, and uh, that way I can have peace. It's not that, and it's also not the kind of peace where you're like, okay, everything in my life is, you know, nothing's really rocking the boat. Everything's calm, so I can have peace. It's not that. It's the kind of peace that comes from your trust being so solidly formed that no matter what the circumstances are around you, you can be not moved in your faith. Okay? And we have to go all the way back to the beginning again to understand why rest is so important. And I love that Lacey shared this this morning in the ladies' class. How is it that the rest of God is still waiting for people to enter it? And it's no different today than than when Hebrews was written. In Eden, Eden, Adam and Eve existed first in this complete place of perfect rest. Anxiety didn't exist. Distrust didn't exist. And they lived in that full trust of the Father all the time. Of course, until the day they sinned. But what was to be God ruling through his creation in blessing and order based on trust got handed over to the enemy then who rules through chaos and through disorder. And so what followed thereafter, you know, culminates in what we live in now, but this long snowball effect of every part of creation and every thought pattern of man, and I'm speaking in generalities, but every thought pattern of man generally being under the rule of Satan or, I mean, Satan who is anti-Christ, right? So when we enter as individuals into living relationship with him and we we begin to allow the Lord to dismantle all of the anti-Christ generated paradigms and we repent for them and we turn away from them and the mind is being renewed, what we are doing is we are moving back towards Eden, the place of rest, okay? So for this reason, the overarching process of relationship with the Father is to bring each person into his rest. Belief is the ultimate goal of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. It's, it's whether we realize it or not, everything the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer, including the leading, including the teaching, including the comforting, and all the other things he does for us, it is all to bring a person into more and more belief until that belief is fully formed. Okay? And, and when I, and, and it, it, he does it in layers, and he does it in, in different areas of our life until all of the areas are covered under faith. And so, for example, um, my husband could probably... He could probably teach us several message series on how to enter the Lord's rest in the middle of a very demanding, busy career. He will teach us rest in the middle of finances, right? He will teach us rest in the middle of parenting, which is difficult because it takes this continual relationship and discernment with children to know what is our responsibility as parents in their care and their protection, but also to know where that dividing line is between when you know, our responsibility ends and the Lord's begins. And it changes as the, it changes almost daily. It changes as they grow. He will teach us rest in the middle of marriage and how what that looks like according to what God originally designed it to be. So this is what I mean by every area of life. And if we let him, 
he will methodically go to work within us and he'll teach us how to relinquish control and fear in every area. And I don't want to make this process sound easy because it's, it's a very beautiful, but it's a very difficult process. It is not easy for a person to let go of everything into the hands of faith. So if all work of the Holy Spirit is ultimately to bring us into rest, then the opposite is also true. And the opposite of rest, which is unbelief, is the ultimate goal of Satan against every believer. If you boil everything down, all the roots of every oppression a person experiences is either from unbelief or it is to cause unbelief. If we refuse to trust God, then we already make ourselves vulnerable to his oppressive tactics, right? If we are trusting God and we're standing firm in our faith, he's still trying to oppress and wear down and chip away at that, that faith we do have and trying to constantly bring doubt, okay? So that is his goal. When we live in rest, when we get there and we enter in and we live in true rest, we are always in his perfect will. We are never deceived. We never miss anything. And we always have everything that we need. We will always be where we're supposed to be when we're supposed to be there. We struggle less because our faith level is too high for the enemy to penetrate much. We struggle less emotionally because our emotions are subjected to the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute. So in rest, we're never ruffled. We're never triggered. We're never offended. And that is because all of our perceived rights, perceived, the rights we think we have, have been long ago surrendered to the Lord because we are not our own. We are bought with a price, right? So what we just read there, Hebrews 4, 9, where he says there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. The word rest there in that verse means a Sabbath-type existence as a type of heaven. So we know the father is the one who started the principle of the Sabbath when he rested on the seventh day, and then he later instituted the Sabbath for the people, right, as an observance to live by. And the Lord always does this. He always puts forth a physical observance or a physical principle to teach the spiritual principles. It's how we learn. It's all through the Bible. The physical observances, though, were never only about the physical observances. With him, they're always to lead us into understanding the spiritual principles behind them. And so if the works, the physical works of the physical observance never leads to heart change, then the whole point is lost. The works themselves can even become an abomination because there is no belief behind the works. Okay. And I just want to read something from the book of Amos, I just want to show you how God feels about this in particular. He is describing here the ramifications of where God gave physical principles, but the people didn't enter into relationship with him. And so the heart change part never happened. And this is how people get stuck in traditions that through generations, but there's no belief behind the traditions or why people still carry them on. So the Lord is speaking through Amos here, and he's had enough of this. And he says, I hate, uh, sorry, this is Amos 5, 21. 
the Lord, he says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So if the physical observance of things never translates into the heart posture of belief and relational connection with the Lord, then it's empty. And this was the condition of the Pharisees in Jesus' time. So the Sabbath is one of those institutions. He was saying the requirements and the rules, uh, sorry, well, let me read this part first. In Mark 2, Jesus makes a statement. He says the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not for the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath, right? So he was saying there that the rules were to help alongside relationship with him to point the way to faith. The enemy in the world constantly took what God set forth and it became twisted and skewed into actual heavy bondage on the people instead. At the children's hospital, and we lived there for months at a time, it took me a while to figure this out, but on Fridays and Saturdays, they would program one of the elevators to specifically for Orthodox Jews to be able to get on the elevator, and so they would program it to stop at every floor all the way up and all the way down so that the Orthodox Jews could get into the elevator and not have to push the button, right? That was considered work to them. So if you, you know, inadvertently you would forget and you would get on one of these elevators, you'd be on for a long ride. But there have also been different Christian movements about returning to the Sabbath and keeping it as a holy day. And Carson and I were talking about this a few weeks ago. And because he was following someone on social media who was talking about this, and it's not a bad thing, of course not, for people to take a day off and rest and tune into their families and, you know, quiet the chatter. And sometimes a physical habit is needed first for people to begin to make the, men, um, the spiritual and mental transition. And so if it helps them to take a day off each week and do that, then by all means do it. That's great. But understand it was all meant to teach us a greater spiritual principle, and that is the real rest of God we're meant to live in every day. And that's even if we're busy. Because in rest, trust me, you can be very busy, or everything around you can be very chaotic, or you can be in a great deal of emo- emotional pain even, but you can still be not moved in your faith. Where God is directing everything we do, and there's no burnout when we live that way. Burnout happens when we see ourselves as the source of accomplishment and we, see, we do things in our own strength, and that is a very heavy burden to bear. We weren't meant to bear that burden. If we see him as the source of accomplishment through us, it's very light, and that is the easy yoke okay, that Jesus was talking about. Because when it all comes down to it, we have only one job. It is to abide. Okay? So there are eight important rest, points about rest that I want to give you guys today that the Lord has taught me over the years. And... The very first one is probably the hardest pill to swallow, so we're going to talk through that one first. So, number one, the choice for rest is always made 
in the middle of chaos. And chaos can include any kind of upheaval, turmoil, warfare, hardship. The choice for rest is never solidly made in a time of peace. And that is because faith is built when faith is needed. It's when something comes at you where the demand is made on your faith and you have that moment of decision, right? Am I going to believe or am I not? And so it might not feel encouraging to hear this, but true rest is only forged within us through continual assault of chaos. Because rest is chosen. It doesn't just happen. In our humanity, we don't make the choice to trust until our trust level is threatened by something. Um, a few weeks ago, we, were, we went to Florida, Jeff and I, and we were taking this boat tour. You might have hear, heard us say this, but we were taking this, be- it was a beautiful day. We were taking this boat tour through this wealthy area in this waterway, and we had this tour guide, and he was, these houses we were seeing were $20, $25 million houses, and he was telling us about them. And so he made a statement and he said, oh, this house was built to withstand a Category 5 hurricane, which it is on the southern tip of Florida, right on the ocean, so I could see why they would do that. But while he's saying that, I'm just thinking, how can they be sure about that, right? Because I understand humans are smart. Humans can do their best calculations and their best engineering, but that's just a theory until it's tested, right? The hurricane would be the test. Faith is the same. Faith is a nice little theory in our minds that we sing songs about until it's tested. You know, nice little slogan on a coffee mug, but real faith will cost you. And it is a fight of belief to get back to what was originally lost at Eden, right? So we don't fight for rest while life is calm. And so if you're particularly bent towards control or resisting the process, trust me, it is not going to be a fun time for you. And I am speaking from experience here. I'd like to save everybody the hard road, but most of the time we do learn the hard way in our humanity. And I, most of you here, you, you already understand what I'm saying because you feel like you have been hit and hit and hit with turmoil and chaos just nonstop And you've been facing that on multiple fronts for a long time, and it's not because God is mean. It is because we are pushing through and into a stronghold of belief that wants to keep its hold. We know that extreme shaking is coming. We know that it is needed, right, for the destruction of the world's value system. But when, or lack of, or remaking is what we need, right? When devastation hits, perspective suddenly changes, and and we will see this. And what happens is frivolous things go out the window first. It's like things like entertainment and art and fashion. Because when life becomes more about survival, people figure out real quick what is important and what isn't. And as resources diminish, it will be obvious what people are trusting. And I think we're going to see this collective kind of flailing and trying to come up with fallback strategies, plan B strategies, until all of those are exhausted. Because even if the Lord is taking us through this process earlier, process separately, he will let us chase down all of our plan B strategies until we come to the end of them. 
And ultimately, choice is forced, right? It's either rest or it's chaos. It's either trust God or give in to be taken over by fear. It reminds me of these verses in Isaiah, which I will read. Isaiah 28, verse 12, where he said, God has told his people, here's a place of rest. Let the weary rest here. This is a place of quiet rest, but they would not listen. So the people refused to trust, and they set themselves up for judgment. And this is the picturesque language that always grabbed my attention. Verse 19. Again and again, that flood will come, morning after morning, day and night, until you are carried away. This message will bring terror to your people. The bed you have made is too short to lie on. The blankets are too narrow to cover you. There will be a small amount of people who will have faith to carry them. And it it doesn't mean we won't experience the pain or the difficulty of watching other people make different choices. But we will be able to not be moved. The picture of the Israelites in the wilderness is how, how God is trying to develop his people even today. He did everything he could to try to transfer their mindset of the people from slavery to trust. He provided food right from heaven every day. He had the pillar of of fire there and the cloud there, and he led them by it. So if the fire or the cloud was moving, they were moving. If it stayed somewhere for a long time, they were staying somewhere for a long time. And it's like he was training his people in a physical way, but he was saying to them, you can do nothing else to survive. So you are going to have to do this for a very long time until you stop fighting me about the way you think things should go, and you just relax and you just trust me. And a lifestyle emerged from that. It was a lifestyle of living physically unsettled all the time and learning to be okay with it, where every decision we make is in flux, right? Because in the back of their minds, they could make a plan, sure, but they couldn't plan on the sureness of even what next week would look like. Because even if the fire and the cloud hadn't moved for a long time, it still could move next week. It still could move in 10 minutes. It still could move tomorrow. And so there was this understood process when they made all their, their plans. It was like, well, yes, we'll plan on doing that. Well, I mean, of course, unless the Lord moves the cloud or the fire, in which case it's understood everybody's plans get rearranged and we're going to be packing up and moving, you know. So plan changes happen And nobody gets upset about that. You just flow. And it's how he teaches us to be comfortable with constant change. Honestly, you know when you have entered his rest, when you feel like you have no idea what's going on or what's coming, and you're just okay with it. And when we need to know something, he will make sure I know. If I don't know something right now that I wish I knew, but I don't know it, I don't need to know it right now. You know, and uh, it's, it's funny because we were talking about this the other night. Carson and I had this running joke between us, and it came from the line of the most recent Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World. Anyway, so the, the two main characters are, they, it, this particular scene in the movie, they're running for their lives. They're like sprinting through this field because there's these angry dinosaurs chasing them. And at this point in the movie, they have 
uh, exhausted all their plans to get out of their situation, and nothing was working, and so they're just trying not to get eaten. And so the one of them is, I mean, they're running, and one of them's like, what's the plan? And the other one says, whatever happens, that's the plan, you know. And, and we just cracked up at that because it felt so much like where the Lord has us. You know, it's we're always saying to each other, whatever happens, that's the plan, you know. And I just think that God loves when his people arrive at that point where you can just flow that way, you know. All right, number two. Rest is a place of diligence and vigilance, not complacency. We'll just reread real quick Hebrews 4, verse 11 that we read earlier. Let us therefore be zealous and exert ourselves and strive diligently to enter that rest. What does that mean? Strive diligently to enter rest. Like the, seems like an oxymoron a bit, right? It is working hard at only one thing belief. It's working hard to believe. It's the constant abiding in the vine, which is not passive. It takes intentionality. It takes never leaving the conversation with the Lord. So rest is fully formed faith, but it's not blanketly applied. Like, oh, just have faith. You know, it's, it's very specific. It's not reckless. And by that I mean, I will believe anything, but I also question everything. If the Lord is saying something to me, no matter how crazy it sounds, I will believe it. But I also question everything because everything has to filter through a Holy Spirit discernment. And that is the vigilant part. That's the vigilance. So it's not, rest is not lazy. It's not just coasting along. In fact, rest is the most continually active, vigilant faith place that exists. All right, number three. In rest, we are properly aligned. God's spirit connected with our spirit managing over our soul and our body. And we talked about this this morning, some too. So we know each one of us have three parts, spirit, soul, and body. And when we're at complete rest, then, my spirit manages my emotions and my will. Okay? Not the off-balance way of my mind or my emotions ruling over my spirit. See, we heal and we become truly whole from spirit first down to body and soul, okay? People who don't know the Lord or even ones who, who are sealed by the Holy Spirit but don't understand this, they will try to look for self-improvement or healing with a focus on the soul first or a focus on the body first. If they try to heal from the focus on the soul, they might turn to psychology, psychiatry, they might turn to self-care, they might turn to uh, many unhealthy ways to handle pain, substance abuse, whatever, how to handle emotional pain. If they try to heal from a focus on the body first, they might turn to fitness or health or even um, health practitioners, medications, doctors, 
And it is even possible to find a measure of relief with that focus a little bit. But if they find any relief, it will never be lasting, and it will always feel like a chase. And so if you start with the Holy Spirit working with our spirit first in relationship, then we will learn and heal because real wholeness originates in the spirit first. Our trust in him allows us to receive direction for the peace in the other two parts of us. Okay? So when our spirit rules our emotions, we can be unoffendable because we don't give offense a place to land. We can refuse to get irritated. Okay? It's not that irritations don't still try to come, but they don't have to take our peace. And so you can be in this place where nothing will trigger me because I just won't take the bait. Because I've just decided the Holy Spirit is the boss of me. And my emotions are subject to him. Okay? And we still experience emotions. Okay? Emotions are from the Lord. They're created by him. They're good. And, and even grief itself is something we have to process. But we handle that grief alongside with trust. Okay? You can't experience deep emotional pain and still be in faith. I wish I would have known that years ago. It took me a long time to figure it out. I know it now. Jesus showed us that also in Gethsemane. One thing that does seem universal to everyone learning to live in rest is having to overcome disappointment. And that is because disappointment is a powerful thing that can keep a person in unbelief. So again, this may not feel encouraging, but you might find, if you stay on this path with the Lord, you might find yourself facing disappointment over and over again until the disappointment doesn't trigger a departure away from faith. And you'll know when the disappointment hits and it just doesn't move you. Um, It's a really important transition that we start to recognize disappointment always has to be surrendered. That is the only right way to handle it. It's the only freeing way to handle it. And this is the training for coming into rest and chaos. It's the training for not being offended with God for anything he allows in our lives. And so we can say like Job, where it says many times in the book of Job, after everything he went through, and Job did not sin by accusing God. Last week, Greg was, um, he was speaking about the downfall of Satan, and he was reading Ezekiel 28. And he made a comment that he wondered how it was that Satan went from making the jump from being a perfect, blameless creation of God to being cast out of the mountain of God as a profane thing, right? And it's funny because I had actually been mulling that exact thing for weeks, and I didn't talk to him about it yet, but I have a theory. And it's a theory that I believe because the Lord, I do believe the Lord has shared this with me. But for your sakes, I will call it a theory since the Bible doesn't specifically spell it out. But we know that mankind and angels have free will to choose, right? I don't believe Satan went from blameless directly to completely depraved. Isaiah 14 says that Satan said at his heart, I will ascend. I will raise my throne. I will make myself like the most high, right? So I suggest there was a moment where Satan 
went from blameless, not to fully depraved, like in one fell swoop, but from blameless to first autonomous. His will that was once surrendered to the Father's will, one day he removed it. He removed his will out from under the Father's will. And he just decided to govern himself. And what causes this kind of decision? Like there's always a heart, um, there's always a heart motivation that it comes from. I believe that Satan's decision for autonomy started first with him entertaining distrust. That is why trust always moves us closer and closer to the Father. Because distrust is always the first heart choice step away from the Father. I believe that because of distrust, Satan decided to just lead himself. And he left the place of being led through trust, and he just took his own initiative. And it just went down. Sure, it went downhill quickly from there. And then he later just provoked the same process with Eve. It's like, lead yourself, Eve. You know, clearly you're deficient in something that the Father is withholding from you, right? Just sowing that same seed of distrust in her. He does the same thing with us. If you pay attention, <laughs> it's the same thing that happens all the time. Maybe looks different in different situations and circumstances, but it's the same, same approach. The father can't be trusted. That's his mantra. And I say this because we have a starkly opposite example in Jesus, who is determined to not move or speak anything that was not the father's will or his words. He demonstrated how we... Us, we can live in authority over Satan, and that is when I trust the Father and I refuse to lead myself or take my own initiative from my own autonomy. And that's what I mean by our spirits being led by the Holy Spirit with our will and our logic and our emotions under that. Okay? Okay. We'll move on. Number four. Rest is a place of perpetual encouragement. When you are very close to the Lord in that abiding relationship, and that, that puts you in a place where you are automatically and perpetually encouraged. And we still encourage each other, of course. But perfect rest is the place where I don't need another person in the world to encourage me because my stability is not dependent on someone else's encouragement. Okay, because I know how to trust my father so well. And I will say one of the most powerful discouragements that comes at most all of us that we've talked about a lot is the discouragement that can come from time, right? Because sometimes it's just sheer length of time where promises seem delayed And the agony of the difficulty is extended over a long period of time. But when we finally, by faith, okay, this is a faith step, we embrace his timing and we stop fighting the frustration of time, the enemy can no longer use the weapon of time against us to kill our faith. 
The Lord told me this a couple years ago, that the enemy was trying to use time as a weapon against me. And that is where we feel that heaviness of hope deferred. But ultimately, time serves the Lord. He created it. It serves his purposes, not the enemy's. And when we overcome that assault by our faith, the length of time we even suffer in something is turned around for our good. If you find yourself often discouraged, and this is, this is another hard pill to swallow, okay? It's just the truth, so I have to say it. I'm trying to save you guys some heartache and some time and some energy. If you find yourself often discouraged, it is not encouragement from others that is needed. It's actually a stronger decision to believe that is needed. And we sometimes think that, oh, I need encouragement, so we'll kind of go, you know, looking for it or, you know, trying to find it through someone or somewhere. But always in the end, if you just pay attention to what's going on in yourself, it's, it's our decision to believe that removes the discouragement. Okay? So when discouragement tries to come, it becomes a skill we develop to feel the discouragement come and then counter it with belief. And when we do this long enough, we stay perpetually encouraged. And to that point, the next one, number five, rest is our most powerful weapon. A friend of mine helped me understand this about five years ago. She was describing some warfare she could see in the spirit around me, and she just said that as I chose rest, the enemy was being cut down around me, and she described this gory scene with blood flying and everything i was like nice you know but she said if i when i chose rest the enemy was just dying all around me simply by my decision and i was like oh that's when i finally got it when it happens long enough that every time the enemy comes against you you immediately recognize it and you decide to believe the opposite the enemy starts learning that everything he does drives you deeper into faith, he will back off on his own because everything he does then backfires. My posture towards Satan is, like, I, I will talk to him. I'm not suggesting this is smart for everyone, but my posture towards Satan is, there is no way I'm not winning this fight. My trust in the Lord will exceed whatever you are throwing every time. And again, I'm not suggesting foolish taunting of the enemy here. You do need to be led into warfare in some cases, and it's not always smart to just mouth off because you, you need to believe what you say. Your words will be tested, okay? Mean it when you say it, if you say it like that. Satan and I are acquainted, and we hate each other, so I do this, but... I'm talking about a deep resolve of faith that says, Satan, you will give up before I ever will. And it's where the heroes of faith were in Hebrews 11, the ones who died in faith. In our humanity, we would think of that as defeat, right? Well, they, they died in faith. They never got to see what they were believing for. That's not how the Lord sees it. Being willing to die in faith is true victory in the Lord's eyes. And if you just decided, I will die in faith if I have to, 
My faith will outlive your attacks. He has nothing else. The decision to die in faith is the only way to truly live and overcoming life. And he's given most of us promises for this life. Like we know we're not going to have to die in faith. But the point is I'm willing to. And when you enter his rest and you can't be moved in your faith, for Satan it is literally game over. And he knows it. That's why it's hard. That's why it's such a fight. Because he's lost you at that point. But it's so worth it. And after a while, this decision and this, this un- understanding overtakes you. And it's like, now that I have found by experience and I live in this place of rest, oh, I am never leaving. Because it was such a hard fight of faith to get there that you become very uh, focused and intent to stay there. And you find yourself guarding your rest as a lifestyle. Okay, entering his rest is our overcoming of him. Okay. All right. Number six. You guys still with me? Okay. I had to take my glasses off because this is the first day I felt brave enough to try this headset mic. And I can't, you know, it's like too many things on my head so I can see you, but not real well. All right. Number six. Rest is the place of true unity. Once you enter his rest, you'll find that the closest relationships you have are also people who live in the rest of God. And that is because the opposite states of fear and striving are abrasive to rest. And relating will be difficult with people in anxiety because faith and fear cannot coexist together, right? One is Christ. One is antichrist. So there's this antagonism in the spirit around people that affect the way they relate to each other. And sometimes we don't even know what that is, but we can kind of sense it and we can feel it. Those who don't live in rest are irritated by those who do. And for an example, you can look at Mary and Martha, Luke 10. But that spiritual antagonism exists when we are in proximity to people who are bent on clinging to their negative emotions, like trophies, like anxiety, depression, or offense, or even um, people who are just working really hard for their right standing with God. And most people will not always immediately understand why they're drawn to some people and why they're kind of repelled from others. So... Living in rest greatly changes our relatability and our um, ability to relate to others, but it is part of what has to happen, and it's part of the set-apartness of the Lord's people. In my opinion, it's part of the light that will be shining in the darkness very soon, already beginning, really. And we love all people, but when it comes to deep relationships and Uh, our real close friendships, light cannot fellowship with darkness, right? So the deepening faith is the automatic dividing line. certainly was for Jesus. On the flip side, living in rest and connecting with other people who also live in rest will form some of the deepest friendships and unity that is possible. 
and I believe even a unity that we haven't even experienced yet on the earth as the Lord intended. But we are going to see it, and we're going to see it in his church begin to form. Number seven, rest is on earth the continual status of heaven. So most of us, when we think about heaven, we imagine it's a place of peace, place of joy, closeness with the Lord, uh, greatly, like no oppression there, freedom, right? But that freedom was never meant to be experienced only when we get there. It was also to be experienced here in this life. It was his original intention for man. Yet most people, and even Christians, don't really believe it's possible to live on earth as they do in heaven. It's like, well, of course we can't live that way here on earth. The earth is full of sin and full of the effects of sin. But my answer to that is no. Not in my life it isn't. I don't live under the effects of sin because those things were nullified on the cross. And so I can't make others live that way, a life of faith. But in my heart, in my mind, in my sphere, in my home, I can live that way on earth as they live there in heaven. See, those who, that we love who have died and gone before us, they now see and experience what they could only believe in faith before they died, right? They're there with no worry or fear or concern for us still here because they are so at rest in the Father's love, right? They have no concern for us because there is no question that they have in their minds about his attentiveness to our need. They have come into the full awareness of the Father's perfect care. But there's no reason why this full rest in the Father's perfect care can't be where we live on earth. We live and we move and we exist in him. He's our shepherd. We lack nothing, right? He is the same Father. He, is, he has the same omniscience. He has the same character. We're still in his same plan since the foundation of the world. No difference should exist between the state of those in heaven and the state of us on earth. The only difference is our physical location. The only difference is in heaven they live by sight. On earth we live by faith, right? We still have time to invest faith into relationship while on earth until our faith turns to sight. So at some point, the mind has to catch up to where the spirit man already is. We are already citizens of heaven where Jesus lives, right? Philippians 3.20. Do we believe his torturous death, his blood, his resurrection made possible the unifying of all things together under his authority in heaven and on earth? I hope you believe that because that's Ephesians 1.10. That's the verse we've been saying over and over for like a year now. This is what we're heading into. Since Jesus' resurrection, the price was paid. So we have the ability and we have the responsibility to live here as free and as peaceful as those already with the Lord. 
Are we any less with the Lord? I mean, think about it. Are we any less with the Lord than they are? Because maybe we can't see him. But when he says, I am with you always, and when he says he, he never leaves us or forsakes us, or he says, if, or it says in the Psalms, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. There is nowhere I can flee from your presence. Or for I am persuaded, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor all the other things are able to separate me from the love of God. Then are we any less with him than they are? There is no separation, not since Jesus' resurrection. The only separation then is in our minds. The only separation is perceived based on how much we are willing to believe. And when the church really starts to get this revelation, everything will change. Even new worship songs that are written will change. Right now we have a lot of popular worship songs, and if you start to listen, you will notice they, they are filled with lyrics of distance. And... When the revelation is finally received that there's no distance, the lyrics will change from language like of trying to get somewhere or running to the throne room or running to the secret place because they will finally know and believe that we dwell there. We don't need to run to a place we never leave. And the songs will start being written from where we know we dwell. Okay, that brings us to the last one. Rest is the place of rulership. And by rulership, I'm talking about the place where Adam and Eve were before sin. They understood their directive of dominion over the earth. They understood they were being given plans by the Lord for the thriving of the earth. Right? It's the same rulership position God's children were always supposed to have as his heirs. So think in terms of the example of Joseph. When Joseph was appointed into his position in a single day, he was given the resources of the king, he was given the authority, he was given the wealth, the ability, and Joseph had like no mental adjustment time. He had to immediately step into that role and walk forward. He did not have to plead with Pharaoh for the resources and equipping and power, he had to just, in that moment, fully accept and walk, right, in the position, knowing the equipping and the resources were abundant and available to him. His assignment was to guard the interests of the king. In the same way, all of our needs are met. Every resource of authority, it's always already been prepared ahead of time for us. We've never had a need that is not met. Our Father is abundance. Would we not think the perfect parent would not see or provide or anticipate every need or plan for every contingency? I mean, we, have, we as earthly parents know how to do that. Does Lucas have to fear not being taken care of? No, of course not. If, before he even thinks He's hungry. His parents are already warming up a bottle that they thought way ahead of time to bring him because they're always anticipating and watching out for him. Good parents do that, right? 
It is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And rest is important to rulership because not being moved from that place of faith is very important for the longevity of calling. We can look at different leaders in the Bible and we can see where they failed. And it was always, in some way, a departure from faith that caused their failure. Moses was one of the greatest leaders in the Old Testament. But he did get frustrated and he struck the rock. And it disqualified him from being able to enter the promised land. And it wasn't the action of striking so much the rock as what the action represented. Okay, if you look at the scripture there, it says... This is Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. It says, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. So the people definitely frustrated him, but in that frustration, emotion took over and he reacted out of distrust. And Moses had very strong faith. But at least in that time frame that the Lord needed him to have that faith and that leadership, he wasn't quite there. We can't be trusted if we're, if we're prone to reckless speech or even releasing a word too early or letting our emotions control our actions or if we have a desire for a certain outcome that is not surrendered to the Lord. The vigilance to move forward when the Lord compels us is just as important as the vigilance to remain still and not move when he's not compelling. And that is why Jesus said a couple different times, my time has not yet come. He stayed vigilant about not moving as, as vigilant as he did stay when it was time to move, right? And this is why rest is the place of rulership. And only rest can host what he wants to do in this new time of his Holy Spirit. And we often say that we want to follow the example of Jesus. Rest is the epitome of how he lived and conducted himself. And this is how he defeated every enemy with his life. And he demonstrated how we could do the same. Like Jesus, we can rest in the middle of busyness. We can rest in the middle of a storm. We can rest in the middle of false accusation. And we can rest in the middle of even grief. We can rest in the middle of good things too. We can rest in the middle of joy and in the middle of victory. Once you enter his rest, you'll never go back. It is the narrow road that few find. But once you find it, it's really a very exhilarating place to live. So I'm just going to ask Jeff to come close us in prayer. Thanks, Anne. The, uh, it's amazing. What a word. Um, I wanted to just put on everybody's heart and minds in rest to pray for uh, the team that's over in Nigeria. 
So they have had, I got a text from Greg during Sunday school, and they've just had an amazing time of watching the Lord work. It, it's, they give us very little information because they're so busy. And then when they come back, we're all excited to hear what's, what's going on. But they're safe. Uh, things are going greater than they ever anticipated. And just pray for them and their ability to rest, their ability to hear, their ability to see what he's trying to show. Right now we have the Twiddell family, the four of them are over there, and there are 20 to 25 people that came over from all over different parts of the United States to go on the trip with them. So many of them that they've only met one time or so. So it's really, really unique trip. But just pray for them. They're there until Thursday. They head back on Thursday of this week. But just pray for them. I know specifically Greg had put on God's squad just some physical ailments that they're dealing with over there that prayer can slice right through. So, okay, Lord Jesus, thank you so much. I, I am in awe of your word and words through Bren this morning. I just we just received them. Thank you for them. It just was amazing. And I thank you for it, God. We give you everything. You have everything. And uh, I just say, I trust you, Lord. This church trusts you. And I know that you will provide and protect. And we we want to live here. As it is in heaven. And I thank you for the truth that was just laid out. And how clear it was today Lord. May that go to many many other ears. And I praise you for who you are Father. You're the amazing amazing dad. And I praise you for that Lord. We give it all to you. And I just have great expectation for everyone in this room. For the week to come. And Lord just like I just asked of all those here. I just pray with all of my heart for the team in Nigeria. We just are expectant of all that you're going to do there. I pray for relief from the pain, the physical pain. I pray for healing. I pray for your will to be done over all things. And I lift this all up to you. Thank you for today. In your precious name. Amen.